0: Uh, We're working our way this summer through a series of messages on the early life of King David from the Old Testament. We're calling it Devoted, just as a a tee-off on just David's heart for God. And last week, Dean preached for us from 1 Samuel 18. It was awesome. If you missed it, go online. You can hear it. Actually, Dean didn't comment on a couple of things, one of which I found hilarious. There's a point in 1 Samuel 18 where David goes and gets 200... Philistine foreskins, and Dean told us he was not going to have any comment about that.
1: Still not going to have comment.
0: <laughs> but there was also a really weird little verse in 1 Samuel 18. And you and I got an email this week from Eric Foch, our drummer. Ed and Dean, you might be getting some emails on this one, but I had to ask what you thought of the following verse. On Samuel 18, 10. The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Eric adds, evil spirit from God, question mark, and put on him forcefully as if Saul had no choice, question mark. What's up with that, question mark? And I thought you, it it comes up again today, Dean, in 1 Samuel 19. So I thought you had a great beginning response. You remember what you said?
1: Yeah, I mentioned the fact that it was not an issue about not having a choice. God never violates our choice, but it was a judgment from God because of Saul's consistent disobedience.
0: Critical to remember. I'm going to say a little more about this, but remember this. Uh, You offered a couple of options. It could be this or this. Do you remember?
1: Yeah, I mentioned the fact that it could, some feel that it was a psychological disorder uh, affecting Saul because of the departure of God's spirit. But again, I think that what he felt was the absence of God's presence in his life because of his disobedience. And that judgment was what was driving him crazy.
0: So I'm going to ask for Dean to tee us up today and read the first 10 verses. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 19. And this chapter becomes a profound audiovisual aid for an incredible epic principle. This is really one of those Sundays where if you miss everything else, don't miss this. So Dean's going to read the first 10 verses of 1 Samuel 19. The middle section of it, I'll just summarize for us, and then we'll read the end of 1 Samuel 19 at the end of our time today. But if you would, let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word while Dean reads 1 Samuel 19. I'd love for you to look at it if you have a Bible or dial into it on your phone. If not, it will be on the screen for you. 1 Samuel 19, verses 1 through 10. And if you would, Dean, when you finish, kick us off with prayer. We'll do.
1: Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took his oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Once more war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came to Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night... David made good escape. You may be seated. and let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time. As always, Lord God, we look to your word for strength and encouragement. We see what's going on in the world, Lord God, and we wonder what is, what's going on. All the violence, we wonder if you're still there. But we will look into your word today, Lord God, and find the strength that we need and the instruction that we need. For you are always there. And there is none more powerful than you. So even now, Lord God, as we are about to hear our instruction, I pray that you would empower Ed, help him to deliver the message that you would have us hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: So as I said, we're going to go over today a big deal, foundational, fundamental, epic principle. This is a principle that we build our lives on this. This is where we start. Now, This isn't all there is to our connection to God, but this is where we start Another comment about this principle, I'm going to give you the principle at the very beginning today, so we're going to hear the don't miss this right from the outset, but another comment about this, what we're going to be talking about today is what separates our faith, really, from the current spiritual climate in America. There's much to be learned from the spirituality of Deepak Chopra or Oprah Winfrey or that ilk, but... It comes up short in this principle, and because it does, it can never be, I don't believe, a foundation for life lived effectively. So this, today, this is critical. And really, the entire story of, of Saul and David spells out this principle, but today, it's writ large. So here's the principle. God's purposes will ultimately be served. We can either act faithfully in concert with God's will for us, in which case God's purposes will ultimately serve us. Or we can reject God's will, follow our own desires, and ultimately be bruised or crushed by the press of God's purposes. Because God's purposes will be served. I'm reminded of a couple of verses that the Apostle Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Some of you know that. And there are a couple of places where Paul dials into this. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is describing the stuff that God has done for us, amazing stuff. He uses all this epic spiritual language. But at one point he says this. Don't miss this. In him we were also chosen... In God, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He says at another point in a letter he wrote to a group of Christians in Rome, Romans 8.28, he talks about how this actually applies to our lives. He says, and we know in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So in other words, when we align ourselves with his will, act faithfully and surrender, his purposes serve us. This is a bad illustration. I'm telling you from the beginning, but it's what occurred to me this week because we just got back from the beach suffering for Jesus on the beach in South Carolina. And I don't know how many of you, Dean, go to that picture if you would. You'll sometimes see this on a beach Posted on the beach as you're about to walk out to the beach, it describes a rip current or a rip tide, and it's just basically a place in the ocean where the current is real powerful sucking, and it it threatens to pull you out into deeper water. And they tell you, experts, well, I don't know who the experts are, but experts will tell you that the way to manage this is to surrender to it, to let it take you. So you get to a place where, here's where the analogy breaks down, you get to a place where you're beyond the pull of the rip current and then you can swim safely back to shore. When you press against it, when you try to swim against the rip current, you put yourself in danger of being overcome. It's more powerful than you. David could have pushed into the tide Trying to swim his way out of his circumstances. Certainly, he must have been tempted to do so. There were voices encouraging him to do so. For example, David could have fomented a revolution against King Saul. After all, this guy was on the cover of People magazine's Best Looking Men and the cover of the Israelite Warrior Gazette, and nobody ever gets on the cover of those two magazines at the same time. People were singing songs about David. He was the guy that Jerusalem men wanted to be and Jerusalem women wanted to be with. He may have even had. Samuel, port if he had fomented a revolution. At at the very least, he could have convinced himself of that. He would have had Samuel's support, the prophet. David had every reason to want to push against the riptide of his circumstances. If you know his story, you'll remember that David had been anointed king. It simply didn't make any sense to have his circumstances push him in exactly the opposite direction. Plus, his circumstances were genuinely life-threatening. Saul wanted to kill him. Why not take matters into his own hands? Indeed, he needed to take matters into his own hands, didn't he? And yet before chapter 19 is finished, David will be forced by the riptide of circumstances to leave the capital, never to return under Saul's kingship. He will literally allow himself to be forced out of the capital without a fight to save his own life. And in doing so, he will surrender to the tide. He will surrender to the current. He will not adamantly refuse and press against it. He will do his best to act honorably in the midst of overwhelmingly difficult and confusing circumstances, and we will find through the rest of this summer that he will do that time and time again. All right, let's get to the story. The section Dean began reading for us this morning is a case study in this principle, as I said. King Saul tells Jonathan, his son, and all the attendants around him, I want David dead. I want him killed. We need to remind ourselves that David's death would have benefited Jonathan. As Dean told us last week, Jonathan was the crown prince, and David was, at this point, the well-known rival to the throne, and yet Jonathan becomes David's chief defender. King Saul, Dad, don't look. This guy has only done you well. Your kingdom has prospered because of this man. It's not right, and it's not smart, and it's not good for you to try to kill him. And so Saul is moved by what Jonathan says, and he changes his mind. He realizes the error of his thinking. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. However, we have seen this movie before. And soon war breaks out, and David goes to fight the Philistines. God again shows his favor to David, and David is fierce, and he's thorough in his victory. David's reputation grows, and with it, so does Saul's jealousy. Then, an evil spirit from the Lord visits Saul. An evil spirit from the Lord visits Saul, and he again tries to kill David. This word that Dean and I were talking about, evil, translates the Hebrew word ra'ah, which means evil, harmful, wicked, troubling, disastrous. It's used in all those ways in 1 Samuel. In other words, this isn't a demon. This is a deeply disturbing emotional atmosphere. This is a troubling internal atmosphere, and God imposes this on King Saul. So Saul throws a spear at David while he's playing the harp. Now, if my mother were here, she would call this getting all worked up. Every time her little boy, which was very, very rare, got out of line and got all worked up, she would say, why are you getting so worked up? Saul definitely gets all worked up here. So we need to make note of two things about Saul's worked upness and consider this a parenthesis. This is a little break from our big principle. But this is a big deal observation. It's not as big as our big principle. This is a big one. Two things about Saul's worked upness. Number one, it affected everything. Saul's worked upness poisoned the entire atmosphere of the capital. There's an author who comments about this passage, Walter Brueggemann. He says this, I like this. Brueggemann says, There's nothing here of God or God's will or God's kingdom. In this incident, we are treated to calculating human actions that do not conform to our expectations of what would flow out of a connection with God in the Israelite kingdom and empire. Something is deeply awry when a future king must crawl through a window, when a father and son and a father and daughter, that will come later, are at odds in life and death matters, when the wife of a coming king must lie to the father who is still king. The evil spirit of Saul has infected the whole scene. That same thing happens around us. At work, in our home, in our church, when we allow our worked-upness to control our behavior. It affects everything. Secondly, concerning Saul's worked-upness, his troubled spirit, it came from God. It came from God. God saw the bent of Saul's heart, and he encouraged it. He stoked the fires of Saul's anger. There's no other way to read this. God knows where Saul is headed, and he aids and abets him in getting there. That leads to an important observation. So again, this is a big one. This is a big deal. Our emotional workupnesses are no small thing. You're thinking, duh, but don't think, duh, because we constantly let ourselves off the hook here. I know this is obvious, both from our experience and from everything we've said so far, but we got to make sure we don't miss this. So often we let ourselves off the hook concerning our emotional worked upness we refuse to see the pollution and poison that we inject into the atmosphere around us we're constantly blaming everyone else for the situation the drama the dysfunctional soap opera that we have created and we can't allow this not if we want to honor god not if we want to have healthy relationships It's enough we've got to stop it when we get all worked up, when we get bent out of shape, boiling over from any number of emotions, usually fury and self-pity. When we get all worked up like this, this is no small thing. Let me repeat. That's because when we give voice to these feelings, we often end up infecting everything around us. When we let loose with our anger with our children or with our neighbors at a work party or in a Facebook post, this is not a small thing. It's poisonous. And we should be aware that something far greater than just our temper tantrum is at work. There are spiritual forces involved. Our emotional outbursts, our undisciplined worked-upnesses are no small thing. I'm not suggesting that we stuff it, that we deny our feelings. We don't serve ourselves when we deny our emotions, but neither do we serve ourselves or others when we give full voice to our worked-upness. Maybe they did mean, look, Maybe they did mean to offend us. Maybe they didn't minimize our idea or our suggestion. Maybe they mean to harm us. Maybe they ran roughshod over our feelings. Maybe they do radically disagree with us politically, and maybe they're wrong. Maybe they don't get it at all. Maybe they did report you or inappropriately chasten your child. Or talk about you to your coworkers, Or drive on 495 like someone who got their license from Mars. Maybe you should be angry. But there's a reason Paul says, hey, in your anger, do not sin. In other words, don't give ungoverned expression to your emotional reactions. We usually end up poisoning the environment around us when we do. Our emotional work-upnesses are no small thing. We've got to stop excusing them and letting ourselves off the hook. okay. Back to the story. After David escapes the spear, his young wife, Michal... By the way, Michal, if you've lost track of the dysfunctional soap opera that Saul has created, Michal, we learned last week, is Michal, David's wife, is Saul's daughter, whom Saul has given to David in marriage in a, a very manipulative, underhanded attempt to eventually somehow get David killed Go back and read chapter 18. Anyway, David's young wife learns that her father will stop at nothing to have David killed. So Saul sets up a watch at David and Michal's house so some of his henchmen can go at night and kill David in his sleep. Mishal hears about the plot. She tells David he must leave, and under the cover of night, she lowers him through a window, and he escapes Jerusalem. And somehow, he makes his way to Ramah to find the prophet Samuel. Okay, now let's read the very strange ending to this bizarre encounter, and we're going to take it up in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 24. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Samuel may at this point be the most influential man in Israel, so I imagine that David is making his way to Ramah where Samuel is First of all, for protection. And second of all, so he can say, what is up? Then he and Samuel went to Nioth and stayed there. The NIV, this translation makes that word Nioth a proper noun like it's a place. And it may have been. It could also just have meant the word means encampment. And it could have meant just an encampment outside the city of Ramah. Word came to Saul. David is in Nioth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him, but when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel, the group that Saul has sent, they see a group of prophets with Samuel, they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Parentheses, I want to kill David. Over at Nioth and Ramah, they said, So Saul went to Nioth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Nioth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all that day and night. This is why the people say, is Saul also among the prophets? So in the Old Testament, when they use that word prophesy, they mean primarily two things. They mean, less often, foretelling. So telling about things that are about to happen in the world that haven't yet. They mean primarily forthtelling, just speaking God's word into a situation, kind of what we do here on Sunday mornings. Also, sometimes along with this experience of prophesying, there would come this kind of overwhelming emotional and spiritual connection and you get caught up in prophesying and be overwhelmed by God's presence. Some of you have had that experience in your life a handful of times. Others of you who have never experienced this, just imagine being overcome with, the combination of joy and thrill and terror and smallness and bigness all at the same time, and this is what happens to Saul. But look, this incident is not meant as a compliment to Saul's spirituality or his power, quite the opposite. If it sounds odd, if this reads to you odd and weird, you need to know it sounded that way to the original readers as well. And this little phrase at the end is meant as, derisively, Saul is also among the prophets. Look at him, he looks ridiculous. And that became a little sing-song thing they said about Saul because of this weird encounter. If it sounds odd, it was odd to them. Again, I want to quote uh, Walter Brueggemann. He says this best. This pitifully embarrassing scene is that of, of this once great man, still tall but no longer erect and no longer great exhausted by demanding religious exercise, clearly not in control, shamed, now rendered powerless in a posture of submissiveness. This episode is an act of dramatic delegitimization of Saul. End quote. You see, Saul provides us here with an audio-visual aid of the great truth that God's purposes will be served. So let's wrap up and hammer this home. In this story... Saul is the one with all the earthly power. He has the army. He has the treasury. He has the regal seal. His word holds sway. He says, go kill David, and people weapon up, sneak into Mishael's house, and put a sword through the bed where David should be. And by the way, these people are people who admire David. These are people who might have joined David in his revolution if he'd only chosen to take up his own cause. But Saul is king. So he speaks a word, and it is obeyed. David is a heart-playing former shepherd. He has no property, no inheritance, no money, and no seal. But don't miss this. David will be king because God's purposes are ultimately served, Saul the one with all the earthly power, swims with all his might and all his earthly power against the push of God's riptide, and he ends up immobilized, embarrassed, naked, and prostrate before Almighty God and God's prophet, giving David, by the way, enough time to escape completely unscathed. King Saul has all of the necessary accoutrements of effective power, and yet Saul's purposes are not served, God's are. David, the shepherd boy, youngest in his family with no natural title, no natural lands or flocks or herds of his own, no bride price to pay for his intended, no claims and no army. This David will be king because God's purposes will be served. Look, I said this principle is foundational because this is where we start. This is the beginning for us. This doesn't solve all of our problems, nor is this easy. But this is the beginning for us. But there are many times we'll still have to exert great effort. We have to get in the game ourselves. David has to avoid the spear. When the spear is thrown at his head, David doesn't say, God's purposes will be served. No, he gets his butt out of the chair and runs. Many times we have to press into God, begging to know his will, pressing him with our concerns. Frequently we're going to see David seeking the Lord. What should I do? And many times we have to plan and execute our way out of difficulty or challenge. Every city David attacked required a battle plan and a disciplined execution. But our spiritual journey, our entire lives, does not start with any of those things. It begins with our recognition, our surrender. The beginning for us is knowing and surrendering to the sovereignty of God because God's purposes will be served. I don't say this because it's easy. I don't say it because it solves all of our problems. I say this because it's true. And we would do well to remember it. Amen. Okay, look, today, someone here is facing overwhelming and confusing circumstances. Or you will be soon. With your kids, with your marriage, with your finances or your job, with your health. You're facing a rip current that threatens to pull you under. And let's be clear, you're not being irrational. In many cases, the threat is very real. We get together on Sunday mornings at Gateway. We're here to remind one another that our God is sovereign and his purposes will be served. We don't remind one another because it makes every problem go away, but because it gives us the context within which our lives are lived. We're here to remind one another that our older brother, Jesus, like David, also surrendered to the riptide of God's purposes. And that current pulled him under the waves to the bottom of the sea. And yet three days later, he walked up on the shore and he wasn't even wet because God's purposes will be served. And because Jesus did what he did, all of the power of the purpose of God has been released to us. All we have to do is follow what David did partially and what our older brother Jesus did perfectly. We have to say yes to God. We have to act faithfully and follow our older brother Jesus in all things. God's purposes will ultimately be served. We can either act faithfully in concert with God's will for us, in which case God's purposes will ultimately serve us. Or we can reject God's will, follow our own desires, and ultimately be bruised or crushed by the press of God's purposes. So let's remember, early in his life, David is a little shepherd boy. He smells of sheep. He's the youngest in his family. He will not inherit anything. When he stands under the stars as a shepherd boy and dreams, he doesn't dream about greatness. That dream is not open to David. And then one day, out of the blue, the most influential man in Israel, one of the most influential men in Israel's history, arguably, comes to David's family, identifies David as the guy, and anoints him and says, David, you will be the future king of Israel. What is David? <laughs> How does he process that? I'm going to be king of. Okay. Thanks, Samuel. And then the next thing he knows, coincidentally, circumstances work out and he ends up in the capital, actually hanging out with the king. And then, but mystery of mysteries, he ends up becoming the king's son in law. Certainly, when David wakes up in the morning and he's shaving himself, he's thinking, God, you're awesome. This thing has just all fallen into place. I've got victory. They're singing songs about me. He opens his window. He hears some cute girl down, down in, the, in the street singing a song about him. How awesome. Hey. Like the song. Hey, William. And then the next thing he knows, he's sneaking out under the cover of night and he ends up running and hiding in caves and in foreign countries for years. While he's being chased, his life is in danger. And yet David frequently, not perfectly, but frequently, continues to act faithfully because he knows God's purposes will ultimately be served and he will be king No matter what Saul's will is, he will be king. So no matter what your circumstances are this morning, God's purposes will be served in your life and mine. Sometimes those purposes are unsatisfactory to us, but God's purposes will be served. We don't rehearse this here this morning because it's easy. We don't rehearse it because it solves all of our problems. we rehearse this this morning because it's true. So pray with me. So, Lord, this morning, we want to do some work with you. So we surrender all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. And, Lord, we take our circumstances right now, and we place them at you. We put them at your feet. And today, we surrender to what you're doing in our lives. Whatever it is, we say yes. For some of us this morning, Lord, we're in a time of delight and we've been told something great and things seem to be up and to the right. And today we say yes. And we receive that. And for others of us, Lord, things are, have tipped and they're turning down and to the left and we don't understand. And yet today we say yes. We receive your purposes, your will, In the midst, Lord, some of us of avoiding a spear today, others of us making a plan uh, for what we're going to do at work or what we're going to do with our family, we start by surrender to your sovereignty, to your greatness, how great you are. And, Lord, we know that one day everybody is going to acknowledge that. So this morning, we're glad that we get to acknowledge it happily and willfully. You're great, and we worship you.
2: Sovereign in the mountain air Sovereign on the ocean floor With me in the calm With me in the storm Sovereign in my greatest joy Sovereign in my deepest cry With me in the dark With me at the dawn In your everlasting arms All the pieces of my life From beginning to the end I can trust you In your never-failing whatever comes my way, I will trust you.